Welcome to Mint, the podcast exploring the Web3 creator economy. I'm your host, Adam Levy, and every Tuesday and Thursday, I'll be showing you what's happening at the corner where crypto meets creators by interviewing Web3's top creative entrepreneurs, collectors, and founders. This episode is brought to you by the composable and decentralized social graph Lens Protocol, who's ready for you to build on so that you can focus on creating a great experience, not scaling your users. Guys, I've talked about this on the podcast before. We as creators need to break through a new paradigm of social networking apps that we control rather than them controlling us. Lens Protocol isn't a social media app. It's designed to let Web3 social apps bloom. Own your content, own your social graph, own your data. Lens Protocol is the last social media handle you'll ever have to create. Richard, welcome to Mint. Thank you for being on a part of season six. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Adam? I'm good. Thank you for making the time. We didn't get the chance to connect in Berlin, but I did see your your magnificent wizardry talk at the DuneCon. Um, so so props on that. And I have some questions to ask you about that entire ordeal, about your presentation, and I guess also just a general state of on-chain data. But before we get into that, I want to know who are you? Let the audience know. And then more specifically, how did you get your start into crypto? Cool. Yeah, I'm Richard. I'm a general partner at One Confirmation, and we're a seed stage crypto venture fund. Um, some of our big investments include the seed round of OpenSea back in 2018, uh, DYDX in 2017, SuperRare, Nexus Mutual, a lot of the blue chip DeFi and NFT projects we know today. Um, and I guess how I got started in crypto, this was around 2015. You know, I was you know doing research in cryptography uh, in like with Dan Bonet's PhDs and that's how I learned about uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum for the first time. Uh, then like thereafter, co-founded the Stanford Blockchain Club with a few other folks and really just went down the rabbit hole from there. So you actually seem like a community builder at heart, having co-founded the, the Stanford uh, Blockchain Club, but also you seem incredibly technical uh, and uh, yeah, with a very like investment sort of mindset considering the fund that you're running. I'm curious, how did starting the club lead to where you are today? Yeah, so I mean, this was back in 2017, and we would be inviting guest speakers. And uh, the thing is, like, there weren't that many people interested in crypto at the time. So, you know, probably like a dozen or so in the club, and maybe like 40 or 50 who attended like events. Um, but it was a really tight knit community just to find like all the like minded people on campus. Um, and that really kind of translated well as like I work full time in crypto and like understand crypto native communities, community building kind of the ethos and culture. Interesting. So I co-founded the blockchain club at USC. Um, I graduated nice. in, in 19. When did you graduate? Uh, 18. 18. Okay. So why do I feel like our paths have crossed in the past at some point somehow? But that's really cool. I, I wouldn't be here in crypto if it wasn't for like the, the university ecosystem. Um, and what's interesting about where we are today, I've yet to see like more university-based crypto startups sort of emerge and take charge. Uh, I'm curious, how are you seeing the current university landscape in terms of like crypto startups? Uh, I say the quality is still like a tier below um, people who've like been working in the real world for quite a bit. And I think it just takes much, it's more so like a mindset, like maturity and focus. And like, you know, when you're still a student, um, you have a lot of optionality. Um, You kind of get distracted, you feel more FOMO and pressure but you sort of like mature and mellow out the older you get. Uh, and I think that's a really important character trait of founders. 
um, especially working in Web3, because you have these like boom bust cycles where crypto crashes 90% and you need to have the stoicism and the conviction to like stick through a long term. Yeah, because because three of the like three of the six most valuable companies in the world, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, were all born on college campuses. Um, and the list goes on like Snapchat was co-founded at Stanford. Reddit was created in a dorm room at the University of Virginia. I'm curious to see what sort of like crypto projects emerge out of that young, young, ambitious sort of energetic culture um, that that we have yet to see, like more either on, on a protocol level and ap application level. What are some things that you wish existed today? Like if you had a wand kind of thing, taking inspiration from another podcast that I heard. Uh, if you had a wand to sort of uh, kind of like, poof, you have this product that, that you sort of envision, what would that be as, a, as an investor, for example? Oh, I mean, like the list could go on. I mean, there's still a lot like a big um, kind of open space in um, like scalability research. And, you know, right now, like the big thing is um, zero knowledge, ZK EVM, but that's just the very tip of the iceberg. And there's still a lot of state of the art to be done in like, for example, ZK, ZK hardware. Um, that's kind of one of the bleeding edge research areas, the creating custom ASICs for uh, generating zero knowledge proofs. Um, there's a trade-off space right now between scalability and EVM compatibility and you know, finding the right trade-off. There's a lot of projects working on that and like kind of picking the point on the efficient frontier. Um, so um, that's like one area. I guess another area that's like bleeding edge. I think AMMs is like one of the top contributions that crypto has like, made to mm -hmm. like the world. And there's still a lot of research and kind of green space in like the next gen designs of AMMs, like uh, constant function market makers, replicating market makers, uh, which basically you can replicate the payoff of a derivative with the spot market. Uh, and so there's just like so much coming out of research. Um, and like, that's what I'm really excited about. Um, and like mm -hmm. crypto projects are like kind of taking this new ideas and research and then uh, turning them into products. Where do you think data products fall into place with all these new privacy-based primitives, right? And, and, and zero knowledge proofs and all this new tech that's sort of emerging, where does data come into place in all this? Yeah, I mean, well, privacy is important because I think the next, I think the bottleneck of real world data on chain uh, is privacy. Is like kind of, you look at like, what are the use cases people want to bring real world data on chain? Um, it's like cross margining. So like using your TradFi or Coinbase FTX bank accounts as margin, which you probably don't want people to know your balances. So like that's where privacy comes in. Uh, even things like credit scores, um, healthcare data, this is like very down the road. Um, Got it. Pri privacy is, a, is an important um attribute that people want to bring their data on chain. So very, very much use case dependent in terms of what these applications will be sort of like integrated with. Yeah. Yeah. When you, when you think about as a VC using on-chain data to make decisions, investment based decisions, what is your mental model of sort of using like, let's say a product like Dune, for example, in finding the right projects to invest in? Yeah. So I use Dune like every day. Um, like more than I want to admit. <laughs> You're the top uh, wizard on there. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I, I just hit uh, 10,000 stars today. So congrats, a pretty big milestone. Nice. Um, but it's so, like, I guess generally we divide our investments into like pre-product and post-product. So pre-product like Dune 
maybe you could like, get some insights into like the industry trend and like understand the macro landscape of a specific sector, uh, say some verticalized NFT marketplace, like, like vertical. Um, but it's still a lot of intuition and just developing theses, like more qualitative. But if it's post-product, then you can use Dune um, and like really find hidden gems that aren't really hyped up Twitter narratives, uh, but there's real usage there and like get in investing early. So uh, I, mean, I talked a little bit about this in my talk at DuneCon, but a super rare was like the perfect example where um, this was during the middle of DeFi summer. All the DGens on Twitter were raving about yield farming and like they were kind of too cool for school kind of attitude with regarding NFTs. But if you look at the data, super rare was growing 50% month over month. Um, and that's where we uh, made the investment until uh, I say like March, 2021, when mm-hmm. that was when people did the big sale and suddenly NFTs became mainstream and it finally exploded. But by then it was kind of late to like jump on that bandwagon for NFTs. Uh, so that's where using data like Dune, you can really inform your decision-making, get into um, good projects early on. What metrics or trends would you look at to understand sort of where we are today uh, as, a, as, a, as a, the Web3 web native creator economy uh, sort of exists? Like, how would you sort of measure the growth? What metrics would you look at uh, to determine that? Yeah, I think, um, well, obviously the big KPIs are uh, volume, like monthly volume sure. growth for you know, a lot of these marketplaces. Uh, I think one underrated metric is like distribution of collectors. Um, and that's really the way you inform whether or not it's a organic community or it's kind of this like narrative um, that's like kind of being forced. Um, so like basically the more equitable the distribution of collectors is, like the lower the Gini coefficient, uh, then I, that I feel like the community is more organic. Um, and that's that was actually one like underrated aspect of Super Rare's community at the very beginning is uh, it was a very robust community and there was a buy-in from like tons of collectors, not just a couple of whales that were kind of buying mm-hmm. a bunch of stuff and shilling. Uh, I, I think that's really important when you kind of measure the health of a lot of these early, you know, creator economy projects and markets is like, are there a lot of people like collecting and like supporting these artists? That makes sense. One of the more interesting sectors that I've been, I guess, doubling down on is the music NFT sector. Um, I know you've made some investments in that, in that category from catalog, for example, Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what, what is your thesis on, on, I guess, yeah, like a, a crypto enabled music industry? What does that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, I think music NFTs is kind of the tip of the iceberg for like new um, search and discovery and like music creation It's like basically kind of filling the void of like what SoundCloud failed to do. And maybe there's a future world where musicians that are getting started don't have to sign with uh, record labels and management companies and like have very onerous terms uh, because music NFTs and like Web3 music gives them an alternative uh, business model for starting their careers. So when you see the current state of music NFTs, is it evolving into what you expected when you initially made some of your bets or has it changed? Um, so I guess volume wise, it's gone down a lot in this, um, in this like kind of mini bear market. Sure. Uh, so that that's different than what I expected. I think another thing that was dis- different on the flips on the flip side is um, like the growth of um kind of on-chain uh, music creation. And like these tools like didn't really exist a year or two ago. So like Arpeggy mm. is a really good example. 
that we invested in. It was like building a DAW fully on chain. And you know, there are a lot of DAW projects uh, just like in the traditional music world. Um, but having like a crypto native DAW is like really interesting when you can tie attribution to like creators of, uh, in, of like different layers of the music, uh, like people who created beats, uh, people who create like certain like synthesizer tracks and you can layer them together uh, and with like NFTs in the blockchain, you can att attribute those to the original creator. So when someone remixes your music, um, you kind of have this dependency graph and like down the mm. road, you can tie in interesting uh, business models like royalties where like, say you made a really popular beat and like every remixer who uses it, uh, you get like some share of royalties. So it's a really um, novel zero to one idea that's kind of just at the very tip of the iceberg. Um, I, I, like, I like to see this experimentation. So let's, let's kind of brainstorm for a minute. So as we continue down this road of experimentation, what other products or services do you think are missing that are preventing music NFTs from getting to that next phase? Um, well, I think it's more of just like awareness more so than okay. product or services. Um, and this is also another thesis I have is like, I'm more skeptical of like big name, like mainstream artists, uh, you know, getting into sure. music NFTs because it's usually, uh, it ends up turning into a cash grab. Um, and it's kind of, you know, innovator dilemma. It's like, they have this really profitable existing business model. So, uh, they could probably care less about, um, web three if things go south, um, mm -hmm. because they have a really nice, like a uh, fallback option to go through. So like, I feel like for music NFTs, like the thing that's going to catalyze the industry has to be like a web three native artist, like someone who became big only because of music NFTs. And you can look at like crypto art as an example where um, artists like X copy, Hackatow, Pac, um, maybe people and others, um, like they were not big traditional artists that were selling like millions of dollars at Christie's and Sotheby's. Like they only became big because of crypto art and they really understood the crypto native ethos. So we're just kind of waiting for that moment in uh, music NFTs. Um, and I think it's bound to happen sometime. And is, is that measured through primary and secondary sales or is that measured using like traditional metrics like Spotify streams going on world tours? Like how do you kind of categorize uh, a breakthrough artist in Web3? Yeah, I guess it will be sales. And I think um, like the value of the NFTs is like comes from like the NFT appreciating, uh, not like through like adding cash flows to the NFT. I think that's like, a big misconception a lot of people make mm. is they try to apply this web two business model to music NFTs. Uh, but if you look at it, like the amount of value capture is, is way more from like the NFT appreciating than like earning some fixed income from whatever concert ticket sales they do or whatnot. What's up guys. Sorry for the quick pause, but I wanted to tell you about Bello a new blockchain analytics tool I built that helps Web3 native creators and communities learn more about their collectors and their on-chain behavior. Through a simple search, Bellows Intelligence can help you figure out a price for your NFT drop, show you what other communities your collectors are a part of, and empower you with insights to make confident decisions on how to grow your community. I built Bello with you in mind. So as a creator myself, Bello has helped me make money by finding sponsors for the podcast and allowed me to curate better content for you guys. And now it's ready to help other creators too. If you're a Web3 native creator, NFT project founder, or community manager, 
Join the waitlist to try Bello's beta product today by signing up at bello.lol forward slash join. That's B-E-L-L-O dot L-O-L forward slash join. All right, back to the episode. Yeah, that makes sense. I've been collecting a lot of music NFTs, either on catalog, on sound, whatever it may be. Um, And I really enjoy the process of being able to support an artist through patronage. And I actually feel a much closer connection to them, right? Because we're yeah. in these group chats, they're giving us updates. And with that, I, I remember, so I had Rio, Rio Cragen on the podcast, who's dropped a bunch of stuff on catalog across other platforms. And uh, there was this interesting sort of moment where he released a song first in Web3. Uh, it sold out, it did well, but the secondaries were still kind of lacking. And then when he published it in Web2, it did really well on like the charts, right? And then he posted mm-hmm. this tweet that his song, I think in the week, got like 200,000 uh, listeners, right? 200,000 plays. And I remember like literally an hour later, that sort of got reflected on the secondary sales of, of the music NFT itself, right? And mm-hmm. it was the first time I saw that sort of, uh, that connection kind of play out in real time. Have you seen that happen regularly? It, it, it's the first example that I've sort of come across, but are, are you kind of like imagining the success of these artists kind of playing in, in the same realm? Uh, potentially, yeah. I, I can't think of like other examples. I think like uh, the like the Web three musicians that I follow like generally tend to stay crypto native and like are active on Twitter, but like not so much on like Spotify and like other mainstream channels. Yeah, sure. You know, on, on top of that, uh, Rio was on the podcast again, um, and one of the things he talked about that he could do in Web three, Web three as an artist, but he couldn't do in Web two is sort of like the data that comes with selling music NFTs and understanding who his audience is, right? And something that you're big about, obviously, is on-chain data. I'm curious where you kind of see the overlap between on-chain data and the creator economy as a whole. What, what does that sort of vision look like? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's, I think growth marketing is a good way to look at it, is like you can become a lot more um, like analytical and like, be more targeted in how you spend money on like promotion uh, and like seeing like which channels are working, which channels aren't. And uh, this is not just like creator economy marketing also applies to like yield farming and other areas Mm -hmm. of crypto is uh, this reminds me of like web two back in like the late uh, nineties where like companies were just like spending like hundreds of millions of dollars is burning money on like advertising before like we figured out the industry figured out metrics such as like CAC over CLV um, and others, and like basically got a lot more targeted and like better at like customer segmentation. And I, I think a lot of those tools will be important uh, for like growing for the creator economy and like growing these brands is um, measuring the effectiveness of each channel, effective effectiveness of each platform, uh, and really being able to have like custom tailored marketing campaigns. Mm. What sort of metrics would you use today to measure the success of, of your community, right? Um, as a crypto native creator, as you're, as you're, yeah, kind of like issuing more NFTs, building community, what, what would that look like? Yeah, I think like community, like activeness is like really important. So like, like I, you can, you can use like monthly active, um, like people who like post on discord and your like private discord server is like one example, because like I've seen way too many like token gated discords just kind of turn into ghost towns, like mm-hmm. uh, after a couple months, so I think that's a real, yeah. that's a really important metric to track. Um, yeah. And like, there's a lot um, building off of that. It's just, 
how do you measure a user retention and activeness? Yeah, but I, I feel like that's like very much off chain kind of thing, right? Like yeah. understanding understanding how 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 active the chat is, right? But as someone who builds so many dashboards and analyzes so much data, what 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 do you look at? Let's say before you buy an NFT, for example, as a collector, even right to understand the health of a community. Yeah, um, I guess like on chain data, you could probably only look at sales, like sales type data. Mm -hmm. Um, and distribution. So maybe you could look at like kind of historical price charts, um, but that's kind of a really basic metric. Uh, but like, I think like going back to what I said in the beginning, like collector mm -hmm. distribution is really important. Sure. Uh, because if you have, you know, buy-in from a lot of owners, then like that's how you uh, develop a more robust community rather than like a couple of whales who like buy up the supply and basically try to like shill and like pump their bags, uh, which yeah. is more of like short term. Yeah, makes sense. I wanna I wanna jump back to privacy really quick because uh, I forgot to ask you a question that I think is actually super super important to note. Um, I remember a while back Vitalik kind of tweeted this new token standard idea of stealth addresses for ERC seven twenty ones, and as someone who's the number one Dune wizard who has ten thousand stars on there is like the creme de la creme of a of a data analyst, right? How do you kind of feel when you see a post like that? Uh, I mean, Vitalik posts a lot of like interesting ideas and in, like on ETH research, uh, like kind of implementing a lot of new cutting edge cryptography and um, like there's one like this one for like stealth transfers of ERC 721s. Uh, he's like written a lot about uh, bridges, like how mm -hmm. to do trust minimize bridges. So um, it's great to see like kind of what <laughs> I call them, like more purist ideas, like what's the best way, the most um, secure way to sure. do. Uh, bridging to do like privacy. Um, it's just kind of a question of implementation. Um, like, are there trade-offs in implementation such as uh, like how much like gas efficiency, um, scalability, runtime, things like that. And also like, are there any teams that are uh, going to build what Vitalik's building? Mm. It's say in a world where something like that gets implemented, right? Um, where everything just becomes super stealth. What role do like data products play, for example? uh in a in a yeah in an environment like that what do you think yeah i mean yeah you wouldn't be able to track the individual transfers but maybe it could be kind of like a chain analysis like product right where you track the inflows and outflows uh so you can see like how much usage is uh but you can't like necessarily attribute like individual users um that's like one Makes way sense. to look at it and also it's yeah. another way to look at it is like kind of centralized exchanges like there's a lot of data products that look at exchange inflows and outflows, um, but you can't see like what exactly users are trading on uh, Binance or other exchanges. Yeah, that makes sense. I wanna, I wanna jump into your investment career, okay? Um, you seem relatively young. You graduated a year, a year before me, um, yet you have this huge fund. You've made a bunch of bets. You seem like you know what you're talking about. What's your history with investing? Like how long have you been investing for prior to doing it professionally? What does that look like? Uh, well, I was doing like some consulting work for like Web2 VCs about crypto, like before one okay. confirmation, but like, it, it, it's just like a whole different beast for them. So like, that's why it made sense just to focus solely on crypto native, because a lot of the um, lessons that you learn in like Web2, uh, it's like kind of the opposite uh, applies in Web3. And like, I, I can like go on. Yeah, there. please. That, that'd be interesting. Go into that. Yeah. I mean, like. 
one mistake I see is like a lot of VCs like take founders who pitch well and are good at sales as like a positive signal. And I think, especially in Web3, like ability to pitch VCs is like not an important skill at all. Um, and the reason is because like in Web3 projects are not operationally intensive. So it's not like food delivery or like ride sharing where you have to hire a lot of a huge operations team, be good at people management, hire executives, um, do a lot of sales, be aggressive, like, like launching in new cities. Um, whereas Web2, the teams are like really small. Like a lot of these DeFi, blue chip DeFi protocols are like only 20, 30 people. Uh, so it's a lot more product community oriented uh, founders and like founders that are really good at building stuff that users need. And like, they might not speak well to VCs, uh, but they're just really good at product. And that's kind of a lot of the kind of the hidden gems that we found like throughout the years in investing is like founders, like from like MakerDAO, Nexus Mutual, others who like don't have the traditional Silicon Valley polished resume, but just understand the product and users really well. And they end up being successful. Hmm. Interesting. Can you, can you elaborate more on what it takes to sort of build a successful community? Um, coming from someone who started his, his career in crypto, I guess, like building the Stanford crypto club, right? You understand the value of bringing people together and unifying them under a specific theme, for example, right? What do you look for when kind of like measuring, um, and this could be off chain related stuff. Like how do you actually build like a, a great community in crypto? Yeah, it's like ultimately authenticity and like finding people who are like intrinsically passionate about a certain area, not just the, join the discord, like uh, to like kind of get alpha leak on like when they can like quickly make money and then leave. Um, so like what's really cool is like a lot of like founders or like potential coworkers have like met each other uh, through like these discord chats because uh, they were interested in a particular topic. Um, it's like, for example, like the Axie Infinity founders like met each other uh, through a discord because they were interested in gaming and nfts back in 2017 and like these are like, people like living like in in vietnam and versus um norway that's like on opposite sides of the world that they would have never met otherwise uh so that's the great thing about community is like finding authenticity people who are intrinsically motivated about a topic and just like kind of bringing them all together in one place just to like bounce ideas and chat for you know hours days yeah what are some hot takes you have uh, in the world of crypto that you think most people would disagree with you on? Uh, well, I, I gave two of them at the uh, DuneCon yeah. talk. Um, I guess I'll, I'll repeat the first one, which uh, I, I think, uh, which is like, I think aggregators are overrated um, because if, if you look at, if you look at the on-chain data, um, vast majority of volume is still going through the underlying marketplaces and the reason so is because like these marketplaces, it's still very much a winner take all business or like winner take most business. Mm. So, you know, when Uniswap has 63% market share, when OpenSea has 93%, when Hop has a 73% market, market share for bridges, uh, users just kind of out of habit end up using the underlying products rather than going to an aggregator. Um, so th that's, I guess, one hot take okay. I have. And, and any other ones? Um. What's a, what's a new hot take? Yeah. Um, give me, give me the fresh one. <laughs> I guess this, this wasn't, this isn't really a hot take anymore, but I was like kind of sounding the alarm on Solana, like back in January of a lot mm. of VCs were saying that, um, like, look at how much talent is going to Solana. And like my response to that was, 
yes, like it's a lot of good people who look good on resume, uh, but are more of like tourists when it comes to crypto. Uh, and I was like betting that a lot of these founders uh, would leave uh, when the crypto bear market happened. And I guess I know more and more anecdotes of like, I won't name specific project names where that's been the case where founders go back to college, go back to their web two jobs, or they like pivot to building on Aptos and SWE because that's like the new salon of the next site of like, I guess going to be the new salon of the next cycle, just like how Solana was the EOS of the previous cycle. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Noted. Uh, another question I have for you is because you've already made a few bets in the creator economy um, and you're, you're pretty public about sort of like your thesis. I'm curious what you think about this whole uprise in web three social applications um, and whether it be like new social graphs, et cetera. What, what are your general thoughts around that? Yeah, so we, we invested in Farcaster uh, as like our big bet in that space. And uh, I think Web3 Social has um, a good wedge in search and discovery for NFTs. Uh, and there's been a lot of these like type of products I've seen, like been pitched of like building a nice like Spotify, like recommender algorithm for NFTs or kind of aggregating like social data and like when artists are announcing drops across like Twitter and um, Instagram and all that. So like, like a good search and discovery token gated NFTs communities all in like one place is uh, I think a good wedge for a web three social product. And I think like it also um, has to do something different. Uh, it can't be like perfectly skeuomorphic with like what we have in web two. So I think people have like a lot of social media fatigue. So just you know, building a Instagram like UI is like not going to cut it. And you know, that, that was like why Coinbase NFT failed. It's like, it's, it was like this Instagram like product that was super watered down and kind of catching the, the tail end of the NFT hype, but wasn't a product that people wanted to use. Hmm. How do we build a social network that works in favor of creators? Whereas versus like exploits them, which we've seen, I guess, across web two. Like what, what is web, what is web three needing to do better that web two failed at when it comes to social? Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't think anyone's uh, cracked like the decentralized Patreon uh, business model yet, or like that idea yet mm. um, where, you know, like basically like it's like the membership NFT model where like each tier like gives you different access. Uh, it's like kind of ba- buying a like, Patreon sub- membership, uh, except this works better for, um, kind of more blue chip artists. And there's also like a kind of a secondary market uh, to like value, value the artist's time and their work. And hmm. I know there's a lot of projects like tackling this, but it hasn't uh, been cracked yet. Yeah, I know there's a bunch of attempts to sort of go after that problem space. Um, I'm not sure what would define it, whether it be membership NFTs, whether it be like new funnels to capture attention. I'm not sure. What What do you think people are sort of doing wrong? Because there there have been attempts, right? And there are mm-hmm. attempts to sort of solve that problem space. What do you think is missing? Yeah, this is interesting because I think it's a product that actually suits better for existing blue chip artists rather than like a new and upcoming like Web3, like crypto native artists. Uh, and like mainly the big pain point is that the largest artists, people like Lady Gaga and like others, like they literally do not know who their top fans are. It's like, it's like kind of bizarre to think that given like tens of millions of hundreds of millions of people like know who they are and listen to their music, but they don't know who their top fans are. 
um, and like they just don't really get that data from you know Ticketmaster or whatnot. Right. Uh, so that's like a unique pain point for them. Uh, but NFTs is still like this brand new, um, this brand new industry that it hasn't like crossed the chasm yet to these mainstream use cases. So I think it'll be like a while before like these use cases uh, really like this like kind of web free Patreon model like really takes off. Yeah, feel you. I, I I hear you. I think uh I think because you already referenced Lady Gaga, something that I bring on the podcast a lot is like Lady Gaga in my opinion is like one of the best community builders there are. Like she builds community without building community. If you go on Facebook for example and you search up Lady Gaga on Facebook groups, you'll see all these communities formed around Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga is not in any of those communities, right? It's just her fans sort of congregating mm-hmm. because they like the whole monster brand or whatever, whatever she stands for, right? We have also mm-hmm. yet to see that happen in Web3 where fans kind of form in a decentralized manner around some type of, I guess, like artist or whatever, maybe like NFT yeah. artist or crypto artist. Um, or have we? Am I, am I not catching the right well, one? Actually, they need to be on the podcast. Argue, you could argue Vitalik is actually that type oh, of Oh, yeah. Thing. Yeah. That's true. Like he like starting Ethereum and then now you have all these sub communities within the Ethereum ecosystem that congregate around some like like-minded topic, whether that's like really deep, like L1 core dev research, like infra stuff, or it could be like, you know, financial stuff. That's true. Or it can be like NFTs, like more artist creators. Um, but like at the end of the day, they're all contributing to the network health and growth of Ethereum. So, so you're saying Vitalik is Web3's Lady Gaga. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes, I would say he's like kind of this <laughs> celebrity figure. Everybody, everyone loves him because like, he, like he's so autistic and um, like, just like, is like so focused on like building and like research and like, just doesn't give a shit about like anything else money and being greedy, <laughs> yeah. like pretty much every other L1 founder. Uh, and like, that's how like Ethereum ecosystem has like such a good culture is because it comes from the top. Um, right. It's not like a mercenary, like get rich quick vibes. Yeah, very true. Um, I think this was great. Before I let you go, where can we find you? Where can we learn more about everything that you're up to? Shill it away. Sure. Um, I guess emails, uh, Richard at one confirmation.com. I'm Richard 1039 on Twitter. Um, Archen eight on Dune and like pretty much every social. Um, cool, man. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you for your time. We'll have to do this again soon, Richard. Uh, but yeah, till next time. Great. Thanks, Adam. What's up, guys? Thank you for listening. If you've gotten this far, then you are a champ, and I owe you a free listener pin. Go to adamlevy.io forward slash NFT, fill in your info, and I'll distribute the NFT towards the end of the season. By collecting your pin, you prove your contribution to the season and get exclusive access to content, allow lists, and more. So be sure to collect yours. Also, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. This helps me out so much. And finally, hit me up on Twitter at LevyChain. I want to hear what you're building, the latest crowdfund you're trying to complete, or if you simply want to chat. I love talking about where crypto meets the creator economy, and it's no different if it's coming from you directly. So thanks again for your support. It means the world, and I'll see you on the next episode.